This is the podcast of Redemption Bible Church, where applicational preaching is a distinctive of our church. For more information, log on to redemptionfw.org. Thanks for listening. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of these things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias? Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young man came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So I love roller coasters. Um, I haven't met a roller coaster that I wouldn't ride, at least once. Um, in fact, uh, my niece Zoe, who you can see pictured up there, says I have thrill issues. Um, whatever that means. Um, I'll, let me tell you what that means. When you ride a roller coaster, you do it right. You don't hold on. You don't brace yourself. That kills the thrill. Okay? So the Raptor, the one in the middle at Cedar Point, there's only one way to ride it. Front car. Arms and legs straight out like Superman the entire ride. That guy right there, he gets it. That's how you ride the Raptor. So it's possible when I go to Cedar Point with other people that I like to, we'll say, instill my love of roller coasters on them. And Zoe was the recipient of that a few summers ago. Um, We went to ride on Top Thrill Dragster. 420 feet of pure glory. Zero to 120 miles an hour in four seconds. You shoot up 420 feet over the top of the hill, straight down at 90 degrees, and that all happens in 17 seconds. 
amazing. Glory. Well, to say that Zoe was mildly frightened to ride Top Thrill Dragster may be a little underselling what happened um, that day. So there are multiple chicken lines as you're going through the line, uh, all of which, being the good uncle that I am, I blocked, right, so that she could not get out of the line. And when we got to the place in the line where you transition from line up to start going into the train station... I made sure she got in there, and Zoe clenched on both handrails. I'm not moving. I'm not doing it. Uh, I'm your uncle. Yes, you are. You were going. She was stuck. She didn't want to move forward. She was petrified. I could tell you later how she was screaming before the ride even started. I don't even think they had their lap bar latched yet. But the reality is, she was paralyzed. She was stuck. Is that you this morning? Are you paralyzed? Are you stuck? Are you feeling like you can't move forward? Are you beat down with sin and shame so much that you feel like, man, I am just stuck? I think that the question that Acts 4 answers for us this morning is, what does it look like to be moving forward in our faith? And so that's our big idea this morning, just simply this, let's keep moving forward. Let's keep moving forward, church. Why is that the big idea of the day? Well, I'm glad you asked. Our big idea should be the big idea of the text. And I believe that the reason that this passage is here is because that is what Luke is trying to show us in the book of Acts. So let your eyes fall back on verse 32. Acts 4.32 says this, Now, the full number. This would probably be better translated the, the crowd or the multitude. In other words, the church was growing. The church was changing. It was moving forward. See, Luke, multiple times through the book of Acts, takes these little, almost parenthetical uh, breaks to kind of say, this is what was happening in the church. So you get big story, big story. Here's what, how they were moving forward. Big story, big story. Here's how they were moving forward. This is the second one of those in the book of Acts so far. And that's really what's happening here in 32 uh, through 37 specifically, really all the way through 511. It's the church moving forward. It's the church changing. It's the church learning how to be the church. So as we consider this and how it applies to us, I want to look at three commitments to moving forward this morning. The church was moving forward. We want to move forward. So what are three commitments that we should hold to move forward as a church? The first is this. We will be a united church. We will be a united church. Look back again at verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. They were of one heart and one soul. They were united would be another way to say that. They were moving forward in unity. And look, the reality is we know 
that we should be moving towards unity, right? Is that a surprise to anyone in this room? Ever not heard a sermon preached on the unity in the church? We know that we should be moving forward. But what does that look like? What is unity, really? What should unite us? What hinders unity? Let's look at those things this morning as we consider what it looked like for them to be united, what it should look like for us to be united. So three questions of unity this morning. Three questions of unity. The first is this. What is unity? As I study the New Testament text this week on unity, here's the working definition that I came up with um, from that study. It's this. Oneness that is centered on truth builds up the body and aims to make much of Jesus. Oneness that is centered on truth builds up the body and aims to make much of Jesus. So that's a whole lot of study boiled into one simple phrase to try to help you understand what the New Testament says unity is. And so I want to look at Ephesians 4 because Ephesians 4 is really the launching place, the primary spot that I camped to even arrive at that definition. Um, and so that's what unity is. So what should unite us? Let's look at the three parts of this definition. Keep a finger in Acts 4, flip over to Ephesians 4 because we're going to spend some time diving into that text to look at it. So Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 1 in Ephesians chapter 4. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord. One faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. There's a whole lot of ones there, right? One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father over all. It's the summary of the key beliefs that we hold, right? The key things that we hold to. Because unity without truth isn't unity, it's compromise. We don't want to compromise on truth. We want to be united in what the word of God says we should be united in. And unity isn't only truth, but it surely has to start there. It surely has to be its foundation. Otherwise, what are we really uniting around? So what should unite us? Truth should unite us. Truth should unite us. The second is this. Building up the body should unite us. Building up the body should unite us. Look at verses 11 and 12 in Ephesians chapter 4. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So what is the result of unity and godly leadership pushing the church? It is building up the body of Christ. With what? Look back at verse 2, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, an eagerness to maintain the unity of the Spirit 
in the bond of peace. Building up the body pushes us towards unity. Unity thinks less of self and more of others. Unity does the hard things, it speaks the hard things, and it loves in all things. Unity builds up the body. So what should unite us? Truth should unite us. Building up the body should unite us. And this last one, making much of Jesus should unite us. Making much of Jesus should unite us. Let your eyes fall on verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, excuse me, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What is the result of a unified church shepherded well by leaders? The fullness of Christ. Through unity, we move closer to Jesus. That's a good thing. Amen? Amen. This is what the church in Acts has been doing for three and a half chapters, right? They've been making much of Jesus. They have been declaring the power of Jesus because of the power of the resurrection. It's been the whole story of the church so far. It's why they stand united at this point, because they've been making much of Jesus. And that has led them to this place of unity. We need to be in pursuit of unity. Can I get the worship team guys to jump up here for a minute? As they do, look back at uh, verse 2 in Ephesians 4. Look back at verse 2 in Ephesians 4. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So I could easily focus on humility or gentleness or patience, but I want to really focus in on that bearing with one another in love. So here's 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4 says this, Love is patient and kind, Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. So if love pursues unity, then what does it look like to be loving? Well, here's what it doesn't look like. Don't be envious, right? Being jealous of other people and their gifting is a hindrance to unity. Don't be boastful. Boasting, the flip side of being envious of people's gifts is I'm just way too fired up about my own gifts because I believe somehow that I have something to do with them when the reality is the Lord has given us those things, right? How about arrogance? Pride. Making much of yourself is a hindrance to unity. Or insisting on your own way. Making everything about it being your way or the highway. Love can disagree. Love can let other people's ideas win. Love doesn't get fired up over small differences that aren't right or wrong but are just different. Love's not irritable. 
Are you always getting fired up when someone asks a question of you or has a different opinion of you or pulls out in front of you in the car, etc., etc., etc.? Irritability is a hindrance to unity. Resentfulness is a hindrance to unity. Not forgiving others as you have been forgiven in Christ has huge implications for unity. We shouldn't be resentful. We should be people who pursue forgiveness. Rejoicing at wrong. Unity, again, has to be rooted in truth. If we're united, but we're not united around the right things, it's not actually unity, it's actually a hindrance to unity. We don't rejoice at wrong. Okay, so... Can you guys just play me the intro of Great Are You, Lord? great, right? Sounds good when they play it together, right? I'm always grateful for our worship team. I might be a little biased. But uh, what if Scott was really resentful that I changed stuff on him this morning or that I called him up in the middle of a sermon to play songs again and Scott decided he was going to go rogue? Yep. So Scott is going to put his capo on and play in G sharp while you play in G. Uh, you, Yeah. Paul, yeah, yeah, Paul does the right thing. Scott goes rogue. All right, so show us what that sounds like. Beautiful. I mean, the Lord said make a joyful noise, but I don't think that's what he meant. All right, thanks, guys. Thank you. So the reality is it sounds really good when they're working together, right? And really bad when Scott goes rogue. Like, really bad. Like, is that even music? I don't know. Yes. When the worship team humbly does fills their role and their part, they make music. It's unified. It sounds good. When they think of their own thing, it's very much the opposite. It's disunity. This was the reality of the early church. It's still the reality of the church today. We need to commit to being a united church. And guess what? It's hard work. Do you know that it's really easy to not walk in unity? And it's really hard to walk in unity? You have multiple forces working against unity. The enemy doesn't want to see a church unified around the word of God and pushing people to be more like Jesus. And our own hearts are wicked and deceitful, and we want our own way over what we should be wanting, seeking the the needs of others. So it's hard work. We don't stumble into unity. We have to pursue it. And so I have to ask you this morning, are you pursuing unity? In which, in which way are you most likely to be unloving and thus not pursue unity? Is it envy? Is it boasting? Is it arrogance? Is it rudeness? Insisting on your own way? Irritability? Resentfulness? Rejoicing at wrong? 
How can you guard against disunity in your own heart? Is there anyone in the church that you're not walking in unity with right now? What part are you playing in that? What steps do you need to take to make that right? Church, we're either moving towards unity, we're stuck in neutral, or we're moving away from it. We need to commit to moving forward towards unity, leaning in, working hard, investing in it. We must move forward towards unity. So three commitments to moving forward. We will be a united church. And the second is this, we will be an expectant church. We will be an expectant church. Flip back over to Acts 4. Acts chapter 4. Let your eyes fall on verse 33. 433. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. With great power. Great grace was upon them. Why? Why was it there? Look back at verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Why did they have power? Why did they have that boldness? Because they asked for it, they prayed for it, and God answered that prayer. They prayed for power. God gave it. They prayed for boldness. God gave it. Then verse 31 tells us, after they prayed, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. God answered. So so why is this verse here? Well, I can tell you it's not to make much of what the apostles were doing and who they were. The emphasis in the words, especially in the original Greek, is on what God was doing. They had great power and great grace was upon them, not because they were awesome, but because they asked for it and God granted it. They were preaching Jesus boldly, sharing the power of the resurrection, not in their own strength, not with their own skill, but with God's grace and power. God was answering their prayer. They were united. God was working. This is a direct answer to the prayer that they prayed. So what does that mean for us, church? We should be fervent in prayer. We should be fervent in prayer, dependent on God and expecting him to move. It's almost like I've heard that somewhere before, like it's a distinctive of our church. Look at Psalm 107, verse 6. It says this, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. It's one thing to pray. It's another to be expectant. July is rapidly approaching, and in the Boylan household, that means baby number three is also rapidly approaching. And let me tell you, I remember the day that especially Macaria was born, or even the weeks leading up to it, right? So everybody says, walk, 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 that'll, that'll induce labor. They lie. It does nothing. I probably walked 20 miles with Angela in those weeks leading up to Macaria being born, and nothing. 
But we were expectant. Why were we doing all that? Because we were so excited to meet this child and to get to know her and to understand her and learn about her. We were excited. And you have those moments in your life, right? Moments when we were, when you're just so excited that something was coming. Maybe it was a vacation or a holiday or your wedding or whatever. You eagerly anticipated its arrival. Put yourself back in that moment. Those feelings come rushing back so easily. What you're thinking, who you're with, what you're feeling, all of it. That expectation. Is that how you pray? Do you expect God moving to be like that? Do you get so excited to see God move like that? I hope you have moments in your life that you can look back and see that you prayed and God answered. Do you see those things with that same level of expectation and excitement? Are you praying with that level of expectation now? Some of you might say, I used to. But God never really showed up like that. Maybe you're stuck. Stuck in your prayer life. Maybe it feels stale and boring or worse yet, non-existent. Maybe because that's because you aren't expectant that God will actually move. Or you're at least not expectant that he'll move for you. Maybe you're so deep in your doubt of God that you don't believe he can change you, change your situation, or change other people around you. Church, we cannot be a church that's stuck in prayer. We need to move forward with expectancy. Look, they prayed, God answered. God still does that today. He still works. He still moves. We can still expect him to change hearts and save people and all of those things. Do you believe that this morning? We need to move forward praying with expectancy for God to work and move. I believe he can. I believe he will. Three commitments to moving forward will be a united church. We'll be an expectant church. And the third is this. We will be a generous church. We'll be a generous church. Let your eyes fall back on Acts 4. Verse 34 says this. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. There was not a needy person among them. They sold their possessions. They laid it at the feet of the apostles and the people distributed that to anyone who had need. They were being generous and the needs of the church were being met. And probably now because of the political climate we live in, you're probably sitting there saying, well, I've got some questions about what that looks like 
today in our context. Because let's be honest, this verse has been abused in many situations to mean something that it doesn't mean. So let's dive in to a couple of questions. Let's look at what generosity isn't from this text. What generosity isn't. So I want to take you back to the intro to the book of Acts and remind you that we talked through the concept of descriptive versus prescriptive, okay? So Acts is often describing events that happened, not necessarily prescribing that we should do the exact thing in the exact same way. This is definitely one of those passages that is descriptive. It's giving us a overview of what happened, and there are principles that we can pull out, but it is not a one-for-one correlation, do exactly as the church did in this passage. So you can all breathe a sigh of relief. I'm not saying next Sunday go sell your homes and bring all of your money forward. That's not what we're saying this morning. So what what isn't generosity? It's not it's not communism, it's not a commune, it's not some cult lifestyle. That's not that's not what was happening here. How do I know that? Well let's let's look at it. This this was a voluntary bringing of resources. So they weren't compelled. There's no place here where they're said, hey, go sell all your stuff and bring it. That wasn't happening. They were voluntarily bringing it and saying, I see a need. I'm going to meet it. We also know that they still owned property. How do we know that? Because later in the book of Acts, it talks about people within the church owning property. Mary, John, Mark. We also see later that they were meeting from house to house. How were they doing that if some of them didn't own homes, right? So they didn't sell everything and have absolutely nothing. The Greek is also very clear here in the tenses that it uses that this was a gradual selling to meet needs. So this wasn't a everybody come on this day, sell everything, and now we're just going to put the money in a pot and we'll use it as we need it. No, it was need arises. I have the ability to sell this thing to meet that need, so I'm going to do that. So it was gradual over time, not selling everything at once. Uh, one commentator I read this week, Fernando, said this about that. There are five verbs in the imperfect tense in verses 34 and 35. The imperfect describes continuous action in the past. In other words, this selling of land is something that took place regularly. The NIV rendering from time to time attempts to express this idea. In other words, whenever there was a need, those who owned land asked themselves whether the Lord wanted them to sell this land. Some did and then gave the proceeds to the leaders to distribute wherever there was a need. I do not think this was an easy decision to make, but some did make it. And the result was the elimination of poverty in the church. All of those other systems don't meet those criteria. It's either not voluntary, it's not progressive over time. So that's not what's happening here. That's not what generosity is, what generosity isn't. What generosity is, let's look at that from the text, what generosity is. First, it's this, it's God-focused. It's God-focused. Where do we get that? Let, Let your eyes fall back on verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. It wasn't his own. If it wasn't his own, whose was it? 
It was God's. How do I know that? Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. I tell this to my kids 300 times a day sometimes, I feel like, when they're doing the whole fighting, that's mine, that's mine, that's mine. No, it's not. It's not yours. It never was. It's God's. God lets us use everything. The reason you can share with your brother or sister is because everything that you have is already God's. Nothing is ours. It's all the Lord's. They knew that. That's why they could be generous. Because they knew they were just stewards of it anyways. So it was God-focused. The second thing is it was voluntary. Again, there's no mention here of some command that this should be happening. There's no dictate towards generosity. It flows from an understanding that what they have is God's, and then they have a heart to care for others through that. When I'm seeking to love God with all my heart, my mind, my soul, and my strength, and love my neighbor as myself, voluntary generosity will flow. Let me say that again. When I'm seeking to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love my neighbor as myself, voluntary generosity will flow. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. It's the uh, celebration passage we use when we pass offering baskets, plates, whatever. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. It's voluntary, but it should be cheerful. It should be something we celebrate. It's when I'm self-focused that I struggle with generosity. Let me prove it to you. Matthew 6, verse 21 says this, For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. So where's your heart? Where's your treasure? It was God-focused. It was voluntary. It was this. It was wise. Remember, this was a gradual selling over time. They knew God would provide, but we have no indication that they weren't being wise. They weren't seeking to provide for others without providing for their own needs. Needs, not wants, but needs. Psalm 112 verse 5 says this, It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. The psalmist acknowledges good planning and stewardship, but he doesn't put those in opposition to generosity. Those two things don't stand in opposition. And I have to say, this is where I depart from our good friend Dave Ramsey. Let me say, I love most of what Dave Ramsey does. In fact, the Boylans practice most of what Dave Ramsey does in our own home. But where I fundamentally disagree with him is in his understanding of generosity. Yes, he says, tied to the church first, and then things follow. But generosity is a step 
in his process. Generosity isn't a step in a process. It is a heart of how we should approach everything that the Lord has given us. Generosity needs to be a heart in all our dealings with the things God has given us. Our time, our talents, our treasures, all of it. I have to say, pastorally, it's okay for us to say that, right? Is it okay for me to stand up here and say, I agree with most of what Dave Ramsey says, but not this part, and I practice most of it, but not this part? Absolutely it better be. We have to be discerning believers willing to agree with some things and dismiss others when we use Scripture as our lens. Scripture is the only thing that should be our lens. I don't want to follow a man. I want to follow God. So it was God-focused. It was voluntary. It was wise. And lastly, it was effective. There was not a needy person. It worked. Why? Because they saw needs, they acted in wisdom, and they were generous. And then we get these two examples of generosity. So, really, the text here ends in 511. This is an unfortunate chapter break, in my opinion. It should go all the way through 511. You, you understand I'm not speaking heresy when I say that. The chapter verses and chapters were not inspired. You know that, right? So, um, I believe that the story runs all the way through 511 because you have one positive example and then you have one negative example. Now, Drew is going to dive into 5, 1 through 11 in detail next week, so I'm going to try to not steal his thunder, but let me summarize the two stories just simply this way. Godly leadership models godly living. In this case, godly leadership models generosity. Barnabas is the godly example, and Ananias and Sapphira are less than godly example. How do we know that? Barnabas becomes a leader in the church, right? Ananias and Sapphira don't exactly get that opportunity. Um, God kind of takes care of that for them. But simply said this, godly people live godly lives that are in line with the word of God. Godly people live godly lives that are in line with the word of God. He uses these examples to show us that. Here's what was happening, and here are some specific examples of how that was playing out in the church. The church wasn't perfect, but God was still building it and moving and working. Godly people are generous people. Are you generous? Maybe I should ask it this way. Would other people around you say you are generous? When is the last time you did something that you thought was generous? Why? Why'd you do it? Was it for your own name? Was it to be recognized? Or was it for the honor and glory of the Lord and to love others? Do you live like everything is your own and God gets to rent it when he wants? Or do you live in reality that everything you have is God's and we're stewards? 
It's easy to feel like it's ours, isn't it? Hold it close to the chest. But it's God's. So these are three commitments to moving forward as a growing church. And when I say a growing church, I don't mean just a numerically growing church. Yes, I'm excited to see lots of people get saved. I'm excited to see lots of people grow to be more like Jesus. But I'm way more excited to see people falling more and more in love with Jesus. We want to be a church that's seeking to grow spiritually, not just numerically. I'm not preaching on generosity this morning because we have a building campaign coming up. Although, admittedly, we have a building campaign coming up. But I want to tell you, I'm not smart enough to have put all of these pieces together. We were in Acts 4, verse 32, that's been on the calendar for months. We had no idea that God was going to do all that he's been doing behind the scenes with the building this week. That's not why we're preaching on generosity. We're preaching on generosity because that's where the text took us. We need to be a church committed to truth. Amen? Amen. We need to be a church committed to love. Love and truth. We amen truth, right? We just just happened. Everybody said amen to truth. I said love. That's what it sounded like. (laughs) Eventually you got there. We stand up and we proclaim the truth and we do that without apology. And I am telling you, I am a guy who is hardwired for truth. I love the truth of God's word. If you've sat in the systematic theology Bible study, you know that I geek out about the truth of the word of God. I love it. But truth without love is not enough. The Bible calls us to both. Truth without love leads to disunity. Truth without love doesn't press us into generosity. So I want to close with this quote this morning from Daryl Bach. It says this, The unity of heart and soul in this community is transparent. Not only do its members declare the word of God powerfully, they also make sure that each one in the community has access to everyday needs. Community life means both mission and mutual care. These occur because people care about one another and the cause they share. They see their obligation to God, even their worship, to be reflected in respect for other believers, what First John 2 calls a love for the brethren. Unity does not come naturally because we often like to go our own way. But to those who share the goal of reflecting the unity and reconciliation that Jesus brings, there is a desire to be sure that his body, the church, reflects his goals through concrete means. There are needs probably in this room right now that need met. And we can stand up in here and we can declare the truth. 
And we should never waver from the truth, but always in love, seeking to meet the needs of the body. The church in Acts prayed for boldness and God granted it. We have some things from the text that hopefully we've been challenged to be as a church. How do you think that we should respond to that this morning? We should pray. Because I'm expectant that when we pray for things like that, God's going to move. He's going to do it. And it's his work. So I want you to gather with some people around you this morning. It can be people you came with. It can be other people. It doesn't have to be weird. Just grab some people around you. And I want you to pray these three prayers this morning. God, grow our church in unity. God, grow our church in expectancy. And God, grow our church in generosity. All right, let's do that together now. God, would you grant us these things as a church? God, we start off by just acknowledging that we need your spirit to move and work in these things. The enemy wants to tear down the unity in our church. Our own wicked hearts want to run away from unity, run away from hard conversations that need to be had. 
Would you protect us from the attack of the enemy? And would you press us into faithfulness in the conversations that we need to have with those around us to be in pursuit of unity? God, would you make us a church willing to pray big and bold things because we uh, are trust that you will do big and bold things. And be a church that's expectant for you to move. Not just in the church as a whole, but in individual lives. In places where sin seems to have a foothold, you can conquer that. In places of doubt and fear and shame and depression and all of those things, God, you can bring victory in those areas. We believe that you can move and work in those situations. And I don't want to just believe it. I want to pray and I want to expect for you to do it. God, would you make us a generous church? Not because we need some building, not because we need any of those things, but because we want to be people who love each other well and who declare the truth of the gospel. God, would you give us the tools that we need to do that effectively as a church through the generosity of your people? And would you help us meet and care for the needs of one another? We don't need to farm those things out should be a part of who we are as a church. Would you show us those things? Would you give us those opportunities? Would you help us walk and live in generosity? God, as you move, we want to give you praise and glory for all of those things and point everyone back to this uncommon community of people who is gathered, not because we in our, of ourselves have something to offer, but because Jesus has made us that by drawing us together through his sacrifice on the cross for us. God, help us walk in these things. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Thank you, church. Have a great week. You are loved.